Last night, I dreamt I went to Manderley again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive. And for a while, I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Then, like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden with supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. Hello, and welcome to the 100th episode of The Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for a Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw, and we're now like, what, one-tenth of the way through the podcast? Uh, I think one-sixth, really. Okay. I think as of this recording, there's closer to 600 movies than 500. Okay, yeah, and probably by the time that we get back to modern day, we'll be a couple years later and have a couple more years to watch. So yeah, one-sixth of the way done. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I suppose it depends on how many they nominate in the next, like, eight years, since it took us almost two years to get to 100. (laughs) Maybe, um, maybe go back to five, as I've argued several times. It just makes sense. Not just to make our life easier, but also to make our lives easier. (laughs) So this week for our 100th episode, we are still in 1940, and we watched Rebecca, the first American Alfred Hitchcock film, and one of, I think, only two of his that was nominated for Best Picture. And it's our winner this year, isn't it? It is. And I'm not ready to say that it doesn't deserve it. Yeah. I'm also not ready to be like all in on it either, but. For sure. It's also maybe it's just that we've only watched two so far and we got really lucky, but it feels like 1940 is actually the year that like cinema found itself. (laughs) Because this one's also really good. Yeah. We got a good one for our 100th episode. Yeah. I don't have a lot of criticisms of this film that are negative, so we should jump in. And I want to say, I mentioned this, I think, in the last episode that I was looking forward to this because I felt like I would understand Sleep No More better because Sleep No More essentially is like a mashup of Macbeth and Rebecca. And wow, I feel like I really understand Sleep No More better. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it has always felt like Sleep No More kind of did that because they sort of needed more signifiers to throw into rooms. And boy, does this movie give you a lot of those. Yeah. I mean, the story in Sleep No More is definitely still Macbeth, but the symbology is very rooted in this film. And I realize that we are now talking to like maybe one person who listens to our podcast. Yeah, so we should probably... So we'll move on. Yeah. Uh, We should probably talk about the actual film, because there's a lot of plot, but I don't think it'll take too long, because really you're just here to look at this movie, because this movie looks amazing. Yeah. Joan Fontaine plays a woman whose name is never mentioned throughout the film. Just, she's the second Mrs. DeWinter, eventually. (laughs) Yes, who meets a guy who's, God, what's his full name? George Fontescue Maximilian Maxim, in quotes, DeWinter, which is the worst name in the history of the world, but also the best one. He is a series of red flags in a tuxedo. (laughs) Boy, that is so true. Who eventually asks her to marry him. She is a paid companion to another, even more terrible rich person. 
she falls in love with him, but she's going to have to go back to England from this resort they meet each other at, and he asks her to marry him and come back to Manderley which is his, like, ancestral mansion on the hill. Yes, and specifically on the hill overlooking the sea in Cornwall. Yes. His big red flag is that his first wife recently died, and whenever anyone mentions it, he just sort of freaks out about something random in the room, like, clocks! She loved clocks! And throws it against a window. (laughs) Or how dare you use the salad fork to eat your entree? Yes. Storms out of room. (laughs) They get to Manderley and meet the housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, who is even more a series of red flags than Maxim is. She's a series of red flags on fire. Yes. Maxim never wants to talk about the first Mrs. De Winter. All Mrs. Danvers ever wants to talk about is the first Mrs. De Winter. Whose name was Rebecca. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler alert, she's kind of important. Yes. Mrs. Danvers then proceeds to just do the craziest series of head games against the second Mrs. De Winter for a solid hour. And that all culminates in tricking the second Mrs. De Winter into wearing an outfit identical to the one that Rebecca wore just before she died, which freaks Maxim out, which freaks the second Mrs. De Winter out, which leads to Mrs. Danvers trying to talk her into suicide and almost succeeding. Yes. Then we get into the second half of this movie, where we figure out what the hell has been going on. Because alarm bells have been raised because there's been a sunken boat found at the bottom of the sea with Rebecca's body in it. But wait, Rebecca's body was already identified. So what's going on? Well, Maxim, in what turns out to be a great relief, just (laughs) murdered her. Well, he didn't murder her. I mean, he kind of- No, she fell. This was a big code issue because the Hayes Code said that you could not murder your spouse in a movie unless you were punished for it in the movie. So they had to change it from the book. So he wanted to kill her, but then she like fell down during their argument and suffered a horrible concussion and died instantly. And the reason I forgot that is almost immediately after saying that, the movie just goes back to acting like he killed her. (laughs) He does specify he did not kill her. She just fell down. But then everyone reacts as if he killed her, including him. For the rest of the movie. So you could kind of just assume he lied. Yeah, I mean, he definitely wanted to. And there was no like, oh no, she died. And now I feel bad. He was like, how do I get rid of this body? Because I hated her. Right. Really, for the kind of a lot of the back half of this, I kind of thought, is he just a liar? And like, no, the only way this makes sense is if Rebecca was a terrible person who kind of deserved to die. You could still kind of have headcanon that like, he did really murder her because you're just taking his word for it on that. You never get any proof that she like fell down and it was an accident. He just says it was an accident and then he had to hide the body and go to elaborate lengths to do so. There's a huge inquest about the whole thing and the big twist there is that Rebecca's terrible cousin that she was sleeping with 
has enough evidence that he attempts to blackmail Maxim about the not murder. So that he can get Manderley. Right. That doesn't work because Maxim is too good of a guy to stand for blackmail, even if it means going to jail for murder. But then there's a double twist where the whole piece of evidence was that Rebecca sent her cousin a note implying her pregnancy that she was using to try and drive Maxim into a jealous rage that is what did drive him into a jealous rage where he wanted to kill her but then didn't because she just fell down. But then it turns out she wasn't pregnant after all. She just miscellaneous might have had hysterical pregnancy that was implied, I guess. But what she definitely has or had was cancer. I kind of got the impression that she had some pain in her abdomen and assumed that it was pregnancy. And then it turned out that actually it was cancer. I don't know if it was like a hysterical pregnancy so much as it was like, you know, maybe her period stopped. They don't specify what kind of cancer she had, just that it was in her abdomen. Yeah, it's more that the doctor has that whole weird series of lines about like how unstable she was when she came in. Right. That like also could just be that she didn't want the diagnosis of cancer and would rather hear she was pregnant, but it also seemed to go over into she was not in her right mind. Well, she also went to a different doctor because she wanted to conceal all of this and used Mrs. Danvers' name instead of her own. Right. So like, you know, she was being sketchy. For sure. Which was Rebecca's specialty, apparently. Yeah, the whole backstory of their marriage is just like, she was a sociopath who just really enjoyed being a sociopath and making everybody love her but her husband. He says that weird thing about, then he found out who she really was on their honeymoon. And it's like, from what? Did she just go like, so just so you know, I'm a sociopath. She did. That's what he says on their wedding night that she said, I've tricked you because you're going to have to play my husband and I'll play your dutiful wife, but I don't love you and I'm going to do whatever I want. Right. But why did she do that? Because she was evil. Well, sure. But even from the evil, what does she get out of it? Even from the she's evil point of view. She gets to torture him. Yeah. Because he's such landed aristocracy that he's not going to get a divorce and he's not going to shame himself by being like, well, my wife is sleeping around on me. I'm giving you a justification that the movie presents. I'm not saying that it's a good justification. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I'm speeding through this, not because we'll get to it, but basically the twist that she actually had cancer clears Maxim of the suspicion of the murder and everything ends happily at, whoops, Mrs. Danvers loses it and burns Manderley down. Then that's the end of the movie. Manderley just burns to the ground and, like, they're free and can go live presumably a happy life with all this nuts stuff behind them. Presumably. Though, I mean, wow, you would have such PTSD. Oh, for sure. I'm not really joking when I say that it is a relief when our male lead turns out to just have wanted to murder his wife and then covered it up after she died. Yeah. That's such a better scenario for our female lead than what you think is going on or what she thinks is going on up till that point. Well, yeah, because what she thinks up to that point is that he's still in love with Rebecca and that she will never live up to Rebecca because that's what Mrs. Danvers has put in her head because Mrs. Danvers is still in love with Rebecca. And then it's like, oh, you murdered your wife. Well, that's not a great position for your new wife to be in. Right. You do that once, like, 
It's easier the second time? Yeah, it's kind of a Pringles thing. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess once you pop, you can't stop. But I feel like in the novel, it maybe explained better why the second Mrs. DeWinter should not feel totally unsafe. Or maybe she does. I have no idea. Yeah, the weird kind of thing is it sort of doesn't matter. Like, she kind of stops being at all important to the plot once she knows. She could just leave then, and nothing would really be affected. Yeah. Once the inquest is going in, like, Maxim kind of switches over to be our full lead. She just sort of stands there and is supportive of him, and then has to run out of the burning house when Mrs. Danvers loses it. That's all she does. And I am... I feel like I'm being really harsh on this movie because we haven't gotten to the thing that is great about this movie, which is it looks fucking incredible. Like from shot one. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And I also think one of the really amazing things about this movie is that we start in Monte Carlo at this resort and we've got the young girl and then we've got the older woman who is playing this sort of sassy aunt character and you have this feeling of these like ginger rogers fred astaire meeting up at a resort or in a hotel and she is the sweet blonde ingenue and then he's sort of the charming guy in a tuxedo and they fall in love through a series of like very holiday activities and the way that that tone is changes when you get to Vanderlei and then you've got all of this slow foreboding where the second Mrs. DeWinter is at first very overwhelmed at the idea of being the head of household for an estate because she's clearly a commoner. Her parents both died and she has to work and that's not something that aristocratic women would have to do into this horror story with Mrs. Danvers and then to a detective story, essentially. And the way that all of that is so seamless that you end up in almost an entirely different genre sort of every 45 to 30 minutes without it feeling abrupt and like, what the hell, why are we in this totally different movie now? When you are actually in a totally different movie now. (laughs) I sort of agree. To me, because of that like preamble, the last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again, preamble, this movie just locks you into a tone from like minute one and then like never lets go. The plot keeps going all over the place to what should feel like a different tone. But to me, it is in that sense of gothic foreboding from like minute one and then you have gothic foreboding in a like ginger rogers fred astaire romantic comedy and then you have gothic foreboding in the old gothic mansion and then you have gothic foreboding in a courtroom drama yeah oh i don't disagree with that at all i'm just saying that when you know that there is going to be something that goes wrong and yet you're spending 45 minutes to an hour in this romantic comedy just short of having dance numbers it somehow makes it worse in a good way makes it worse it ramps the tension up so much because you're like oh my god when is it gonna switch on us yeah And I loved that because I was like, they're still doing this thing. It's still happening. Oh, my God, I cannot take this. Hitchcock's ability to make that tension so severe is really incredible, I think. I just was nodding to myself and then realized this is a podcast. (laughs) 
and you're right. It is absolutely gorgeous. It is beautifully shot. I would say that it's beautifully edited, but apparently Hitchcock edited in camera, meaning that they only shot the things he wanted to be in the film. (laughs) So they couldn't mess with it in editing as much as editors sometimes do and as much as producers sometimes do. Though apparently Selznick did personally edit the film for this, which I find interesting because one, he was dealing with Gone with the Wind pretty much at the same time. And two, well, I won't say that I don't trust Selznick completely. I'm sure we've watched some Selznick pictures that were good, right? Probably. Uh, but none is really coming to mind. Gone with the Wind. It's Viva Villa, David Copperfield. Well, Tale of Two Cities. Uh, and Star is Born. There we go. So yeah. He's sort of hit or miss. But yeah, I think very clearly this is a movie that Hitchcock was trying to sneak past him. I think this is one of those things where it's like always hard to tell in like 30s Hollywood whether that worked or not. Selznick isn't going to be like, yeah, it was basically the movie Hitchcock wanted. There's nothing I could do. (laughs) Even if that's true. The studios had way too much power and wouldn't have just given it away. They would have forced in some level of tinkering. And they did apparently have some reshoots and some things like that. But overall, it is a really, really beautifully made movie. My only negative criticism, and it became less so as the film went on, is that Laurence Olivier's initial performance is very robotic. A lot of times when he's standing, he's like not doing anything with his hands in a weird way where like his arms are not quite at his sides and it's like he doesn't know what to do with his body. But then as you get into the rest of the film and as he's confessed to the second Mrs. DeWinter what his situation was with his marriage, he very much sort of relaxes into the character in a way that made that first bit of the performance feel more earned I guess and less like bad acting and more like an actual choice it didn't bother me because I knew the twist of Rebecca and so I was reading it as this guy is deeply traumatized and he's playing like trying not to show he's deeply traumatized and failing yeah I mean I guess for me the failing was the part that was difficult for me to enjoy at first because we do have to have the second Mrs. DeWinter fall in love with him enough to say after two weeks like yeah I totally want to marry you and go to your weird house (laughs) to me that is not a problem with Laurence Olivier's performance that's just a problem with the plot is that the number of giant red flags she has to ignore For, like, I guess he's rich? Well, he's rich and he takes her out and shows her a good time, I guess. Though it does seem like 50% of those good times end with him having a weird freak out. (laughs) Kind of all of them do. Sometimes he comes back from the weird freak out, but he is forever like, I can just leave you on the side of the road, you know? And then she's like, don't? And he's like, well, okay, let's go have a nice day. (laughs) To me, the strange thing about this movie is that it feels very Hitchcocky how quick she is to forgive all the giant red flags and how quick she is to forgive him literally confessing he would have murdered his first wife, but she whoopsied fell down. And then he hit it because he was worried that he would be charged with it. And so identified a random corpse as his wife 
knowing full well that he had sunk her boat to the bottom of the sea. And it feels very Hitchcock that the movie has the main female lead go, yes, of course, relief. That's the emotion people feel when that scene happens. Yeah, I guess I would still have some questions. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it all works. You are just locked into the logic of this movie. And the fact that the logic of this movie is not the logic of the real world is like, of course it isn't. Did you see that first shot where someone was just like talking about going back to Mandalay and then the camera magically teleported through a fence? This is what we were talking about when we were talking about gothic storytelling structure in Wuthering Heights and how it didn't quite hit it. This movie totally hits it. This is the structure of this world. This is the logic that we are locked into. And we accept that. And I think that this movie is super successful at it. One thing that we haven't mentioned that I think is actually really as responsible as Hitchcock's directing is Joan Fontaine's performance as the second Mrs. DeWinter. She, I think, is phenomenal and does so much work even outside of the script She's excellent as the naive ingenue, and she grows so much in the film. You know, at the point where he confesses to her everything that happened, and she tells him that she loves him and that she's going to be there and that they're going to get through this, she's really become a full adult and a a full accomplice, to be honest. Yeah. But I buy it, because the progression was very beautiful, and her performance, I think, is excellent. I agree. Because Laurence Olivier didn't bother me as much, I think the performances are excellent across the board. Judith Anderson is great as Mrs. Danvers. Oh, God, she's terrifying. Oh, yeah. I have never seen a more successful, and there aren't a ton of examples of this in film, but there's enough. There are other examples of someone trying to talk a character into suicide in film, and this is the first time I've been like, that would work. Yeah. Most (laughs) of the time you're like... Well, that's just insane. Like, just get out of the room from this clearly insane person. But there's something so charismatic and magnetic about Mrs. Danvers that you're like, yes, you have thoroughly logically argued me into this. Yeah, I'm totally trapped because the amount of power that you have is responsible for that magnetism. She's hypnotizing. Yeah. She's fully hypnotizing. Every time that she's on screen... She doesn't even have to speak. She just has to sort of stand there with perfect posture, looking down her nose. And I'm like, I, 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 sure, I will throw myself out of this window to get away from you. No question. (laughs) I also think that Florence Bates as the snotty rich woman who is awful to Joan Fontaine's character is really, really good. She manages to play that sassy aunt's character in a way that is a little bit sinister and helps with that tone of like, we're in this Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers vacation comedy, but things are a little bit dark beneath all of the sunshine. Yeah, one of the darkest jokes to me in the movie is them revealing to her that they just got engaged. Because it's played as Joan Fontaine's character so clearly thinking, like, finally the tables are going to turn. And instead, she is shocked for a moment, but then instantly adjusts and takes over planning the entire wedding. And the wedding becomes hers in this way that is terrifying. And she's so excited in front of 
Maxim, and then the minute that he leaves the room, she's like, what did you do, you little slut? Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't say those words, but it essentially, yeah. she's like, so this is what you've been up to. Have you forsaken your virtue or something like that? And then George Sanders as Rebecca's cousin, who is maybe the first example of the sleazy car salesman in media, (laughs) is excellent because he is totally charming, but also you can see how false and slimy it is. And you get a good feeling of how Rebecca was through that. Even though we never meet Rebecca, we never see a photo of her, we get that because they were family and they were having sex with each other that I get what she was like. Yeah. I feel like used car salesman kind of gives the wrong impression of him in that it leaves out that in a movie where a lot of secondary characters are having a British off, he is the most British. Yeah, but he's the most British in a slimy way, whereas like- Oh, for sure. Maxim's friends who come over are the most British in the way where they ask questions that are obviously insults, or they say things like, you clearly don't care at all about what it is that you look like. You're very different from Rebecca, and that's good for Maxim. And it's like, fuck you, lady. (laughs) Yeah. But he just does such a, like, it's, uh, uh, what's his name from uh, the Avengers, the British Avengers. Not the ones Not that, the like, Marvel hang out with Universe. King Arthur and Marvel Comics. Yeah. yeah, the television show, the dude on the British television show. Cousin Jack is, like, his evil twin. <laughs> I've never seen that one. The original TV show is quite good. The movie is maybe the least Sean Connery has tried at anything in his entire life. Are you talking about John Steed? Is that the character? Yes. I mean, I like know enough to know that he's the guy with the umbrella and the bowler hat. So he seems like the most British of British things ever. Yes. Cousin Jack's got the bowler hat, but he also just kind of has that general vibe of like, nothing can touch me, nothing can hurt me, because I'm so British, but he uses it for evil. (laughs) Yes. Should we rate this movie? Have we left something big out? I don't think so. It's just a really solid, great little gothic horror story. Yeah. I'm about to do something crazy. Okay. I'm about to give this a 10. We've got- Okay, I- I support you in this, but also I think we've got to start accepting that maybe movies can be good now and we need to bring our tens into line. I think we're just going to give like eight movies in a row tens coming up. They should be tens. They're they're fucking Oscar nominees. (laughs) Right. But like the thing is that like then we're rating it against all the other great movies that have ever been made because I feel like we've been giving tens against like Jezebel. And four daughters. We've been giving tens of like, oh my God, they did it. They made a movie. <laughs> and I have nothing I'm angry about. We gave Grapes of Wrath a 10. What The thing that we gave a 10 before that was uh, was Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And then we gave like a nine. Like, I think I tried to give a 10 to Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. We need to leave a little bit of room at the top in general because movies are getting better. That's all I'm saying. I'm not really arguing against a 10 for this movie because I don't really have anything to say to not give it a 10. I just think, like, we gotta start rethinking what we're giving 10s to because we're talking screen test of time. We're talking 10 against... Not just, like, Alexander's Ragtime Band against, like, every movie that's ever been made. 
Which I feel like I've always been doing, A. And B, I will say we are on our 100th episode and we've given two movies a 10. We've given more movies. No, we, the first 10 we ever gave was Wizard of Oz. That cannot be true. Didn't we give a 10 to It Happened One Night? I don't think so. Did we? I would have to go back and listen to it. Yeah, I feel like we got to go to the wiki. It's not like we've given them out like candy. I'm sure we can count on like easily two hands and probably one hand, the number of tens we've given, but also that they've kind of been clumping up towards the back here where we've been at least considering a 10 for a lot of movies lately. I mean, maybe, maybe we gave it to Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Maybe. I'm pretty sure we didn't do it for It Happened One Night. In any case, I'm still saying this is a 10. Yeah. I'm I'm with you on that. This is a 10 and it's also a movie that I, without reservations, would say that you should watch. Whereas like Grapes of Wrath is a 10 where I'm like, I don't know, like it's, it's a lot. <laughs> and this is like, no, it's super fun. You should definitely watch it. Yeah, that seems fair. Wait, didn't we give a 10 to The Grand Illusion? Oh, yeah, maybe. That's a, This is all I'm saying. Rebecca deserves a 10. I'm happy with the 10. We got to start giving a nine to or an eight to movies that are like really, really good, but maybe like not one of the greatest films ever made. And when we watch a movie that's not one of the greatest films ever made, I will definitely do that. Yeah, fine. Rebecca <laughs> gets a 10. You should watch it. Next week, we're going to watch, I don't know how the movie is, but one of the great plays of the 20th century in movie form. Our Town. Yes. And Guy Kibbe's in it, and we always enjoy a Guy Kibbe. I gotta tell you, I'm not a giant Our Town fan. My dad is much more into Our Town than I am. I've always thought it was like pretty good, but it's not my favorite. He has always argued it's the great American play of the 20th century. And he's not alone, but I don't know that I agree with that. Like, I would even say that uh, Thornton Wilder's Skin of Our Teeth is a better play than Our Town. But I get why Our Town is beloved, but we'll talk about that more in detail next week. Yeah, for sure. And until then, this was our 100th episode. So you should go to iTunes and subscribe to our podcast and like it and write us a nice review because we did it. We made it to 100. Yes. See you next week, everyone. Bye, everybody. You despise me, don't you? As I despise myself, you can't understand what my feelings were. Can you? Of course I can, darling. Of course I can.